HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes.
Welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz, coming to you from Austin in the beautiful Barley Swine with Chef Bryce Gilmar, who is owner and executive chef of this place in Odd Duck. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, thank you for making the time. Um, you're born and bred Austin, right? I am. Uh, there's very few of us uh, around that, have, that could say we were born here and are still here. Uh, um, is that has there been like an Austin flight of Austinites? Um, I think it's it's uh, it's just so many people have moved here from other places. Oh that, sure. Um, the the population of, of folks that, that that are actually from here is, is so, so so few compared to the the rest of uh Can you can you here. can you recognize their Austinites? I felt like when I was in New York, I could always tell someone who was born yeah. from New York. I was like, oh, you've been here your whole life. Not really. Not I I haven't been able to. Um, it's always fun to to meet people that. That maybe uh, you haven't crossed paths with before that that ended up you know maybe going to high school down the road mm. from you or something like that so it's pretty fun. Um, now you're not you're a second generation also uh, Austinite working in food. Your father was a I mean he yeah. had a very big reputation. Uh, yeah, he still, as a, still does. It still does as a chef and, and food guy around town. Yeah, it was uh, it was quite an interesting childhood I guess when I think about it. Um, I didn't. I guess I didn't really see my dad a whole lot. I was thinking about this last night. Uh, we were talking about it, and uh, he was he was uh, he was always, you know, going to work early before I would wake up to go to school, and and getting home after I went to bed. So uh, my mom did most of the cooking, but um, uh, you know, my dad definitely tried very hard to be in our lives and, yeah. uh, and do the chef thing uh, as much as possible because he was very uh, committed to the restaurants and trying to. Do the best he could there, uh, knowing that you know someday it would it would benefit the family and, and he would take care of us. So. Sure. Um, was there a lot of his life and a lot of him working in food? I mean, where did the inspire? I mean, you saw the life that yeah. he lived, um, knowing and having no like illusion about the type of work it would be. Yeah. But was it just like from an early age, like this is the only life for me working in kitchens? No, I didn't. I didn't really think about it. Um, you know, I think his work ethic always rubbed off on me, sure. especially when I got to about 14 uh, years old. I started, I had this, like, urge to want to have a job and be responsible sure. and stuff. And uh, so I started working at one of his restaurants. And I think uh, at that point, I really I really saw what it took to run a restaurant. And, or, you know, at being 14, the best person <laughs> yeah. I know. Um, I got to see him, like, in his element more. And... Uh, just to see how much people respected him and Ooh. and uh, what he was able to accomplish um, was very inspiring to me. I didn't know that I would want to work in restaurants or be a chef at that time. It was just really the... It kind of became apparent how important it was to have the respect of, of your, uh, your, your your fellow peers and, and uh, you know, your employees and everything. And, and uh, so that became kind of somewhat of a driving force for me. Um, you know, I always thought if I could, if I could have that respect for people like he had, um, no matter what I was doing, I think yeah. it would be very fulfilling um, yeah. and rewarding in its own. So, I think it was like when I was, I, I, I worked in the restaurants throughout high school, and and it wasn't till probably junior year or senior year when I started working more in the kitchen that I really fell in love with with uh, the industry and and food um, and and just the environment of, of being in a restaurant. Uh, at that point. Now, your brother, Dylan, yeah. who's also one of the owners here, and is with you, he, was he bitten by the food, sort of respect, sort of like no. work ethic <laughs> bug, or, like, because it's very rare that you have 
a father who's a chef, yeah. and then brothers who not only work in the industry together, but work at the same restaurant together. Right. Would you guys have, like, late night, under the, you know, flashlight, under the cover, like, we're going to do a restaurant together? It's so funny. Not at all. Um, <laughs> he, he always had his own thing going on, and... Um, he was more into he he uh, he got a finance degree in, in uh, Texas State, so he which helps yeah, running a exactly, business, exactly. also known as a restaurant. It kind of honestly just all fell into place, um, and, and the timing was right too because he he worked in restaurants too during high school, but it was just yeah. more of a job for him. I don't yeah. think it. I don't think he really cared about the restaurant industry or or cooking or anything like that. But he was very he had a good work ethic. I think the same kind of the. That sort of thing rubbed off on him as well, but I think uh, when he was, he graduated uh, college and um, with a finance degree and, mm-hmm. and didn't, I don't think he had a plan after that, yeah. and so, and that was the exact time that I was, I moved back here and was trying to run this, to open this trailer, Yeah. so he, uh, it kind of worked out that he, yeah. he had the skills and knowledge to help me build this trailer and and get the business started which is amazing and um and allowed and you to focus like, on the food i could focus on the food a little yeah. bit more but i also like i think i learned from him we kind of we kind of learned together i think how to basically develop this business and run the business you know we had the experience working under our dad and everything and we always were able to use him as a as um for advice and, and things like that but uh it was definitely we. I feel very fortunate that we we didn't we weren't like the closest brothers growing up. And yeah. You know we were just the the, fight, the fighting kind yeah. of brothers. Um, and I think the the timing of it was just perfect. And and I'm just so grateful that that uh, you know it was my brother that I was able to partner with. And and uh, you know as, as as much as we argue and 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 uh, you know have our disagreements, we're brothers. I think that we're brothers. We're brothers. We, yeah. Uh, you know I, I wouldn't want to do that with anybody else. So I think. Going into battle, uh, which is what the restaurant business is every day, uh, to have your brother by your side is just pretty awesome, and I feel very, very lucky that it worked out that way, and that he was not able to find a job right out of, <laughs> out of college because otherwise, you know, things would be a whole lot different. So, um, right after high school, you you went off to uh, San Francisco for culinary school, and that's yeah. really where you started seeing that first farm to table. Because Austin, now you would associate Austin as like a farm table town, but back then when you were living there, that was not so much. It was very much uh, tacos and brisket and Tex-Mex. Yeah. So what was yeah. it like to go to San Francisco and see the network between restaurants and farms? And how did that start shaping your mindset of what you were going to build? I think um, initially, so I was 19 when, uh, when I went out there, and I'd only known Austin, really. Yeah. Um, and so it was not just related to food, but just the, the environment in general, living inside of San Francisco, you know, going to culinary school there, uh, this kid, little kid from Texas, yeah. was, was such an eye-opening experience. And it, uh, I learned a lot, and I got to see a lot, and, and, and then I was also exposed to different uh, cultures, um, different kinds of cuisine, and uh, just what what a high level restaurant was and then you start seeing all the the, the, the California produce and and, uh, and everything that it, it has to offer um, but I would say uh, it was probably when I was when you're that young I don't think you your priorities are different you don't think too much about where your food's coming from you're more concerned with can I can I make a hollandaise and not break it can sure. I make uh, 
can I can I do these different techniques um, properly that I'm learning in school and from these other chefs? Um, and then you, I think, as as you kind of develop that and get more comfortable with uh, with just the basic cooking techniques, you start to think a little bit more about the food and the ingredients. And um, it was probably when I was more mid twenties that I that I really cared more about where my food was coming from mm-hmm. and, and uh, made more made that more of a priority for um, for myself as a, as a chef um, and taking taking those learnings and then coming back to Austin after yeah. culinary school you wound up at Wink which would arguably one of the first better more I, no? I don't I don't know if you can argue that I mean yeah. I think that uh, I, I, okay let's just say it then first far, really the first farm to table restaurant in Austin that was that committed. Yeah, that committed. I, think, uh, I mean, I'm sure there were, there, we obviously every restaurant's buying from some farmer somewhere. Yeah, but, te- technically, but like going yeah. going to the farm every week and picking up stuff for the menu, creating a menu based off of the ingredients that you lay on the table that you just picked up from the farmer. Yeah. That I haven't, I didn't see that anywhere else. How did you wind up there? I mean, like, I mean, that's was it just happenstance, coincidence that you like your your eyes are open to this a bit in San Francisco, and then you come back home and like here's this restaurant doing exactly what you learned about. I mean, that was definitely a really cool uh, cool way to approach it. You know, they, um, I remember uh, Eric would go to to Boggy Creek every every week and just throw all the stuff on the table, and then every, everyone just, everyone that was working a station would like kind of. Um, grab, grab stuff that they wanted to create, create for the day, and um, just the idea of saying, "Here, here's what's available to us. Here's what we have right now. This is in season. Um, let's, what, what do we want to do with it? Let's create yeah. a menu based off of this. Let's not have these, these uh, preconceptualized idea of the menu, and then go and try to source it. And if it happens to be local, great. If not, whatever. You know, I think that." Um, that that mentality uh, wasn't the direction that I wanted to go. Yeah. It's more of like, uh, I think once you reach a certain point, you you kind of accept the challenge of what farmer table really means, of what it, of what it is, yeah. and, and the, the concept of, of of creating based off of what's available to you. If you want to, if you want to um, confine yourself to the restrictions of you know Texas produced yeah um, but once you're here long enough so. I mean you've been here for years you sort of have an idea like you have in your mind and in your notes you know it's available in January February March right you can plan a little bit better we we know we have a general idea I know like things that are just never ever going to grow here I know things that like yeah. we would like to grow here that some farmers are starting to grow and like a general idea of when things will be available but I'll be honest with you like every year is different no of course and, uh, of and course. everyone like everyone down here is very it's very challenging um, for the farmers because the the climate down here is so unpredictable and and uh, the seasons are um, like I said every every year is different I think that we've we've got in the last seven years that we've been doing this since the trailer opened I mean we've seen major flooding major droughts uh, heat waves that are broken records uh Cold snaps at random times that yeah. that kill things that you know that, that end up uh, producing a inferior summer you know stone fruit or something. Sure. Um, so basically everything you can think of we've seen, uh, and it's just every year is just like one of those things. And um, this year, this year we uh, 
we didn't have very much of very much cold uh, freezes in the in, in in the later winter. So there's a lot of bugs now, and they, they're just destroying everything out there, you know. And, and so, it's, so it's nature. It's nature. It's nature. It's nature. And I feel like every you know the, the farmers are challenged more than us. And yeah. They're still giving us product to work with, and which is amazing. There's always every every season, all year long. There's always plenty of product to to create a menu around. Um, which is an amazing feat. Yeah. Um, and so, before you came back, before you started the trailer um, for Odd Duck, you left Austin one more time, and, and you went to San, back, San Francisco, but you went to Aspen. And that was important, I think, for two reasons. It was another eye-opening for the Quad Greens, but you also met your future business partners there. What was yep. your time in Aspen like? Um, Aspen was always on my radar uh, as a young cook in my early 20s, and uh, you know, I looked at going there for my externship after school and just kind of always kept it in the back of my mind as a place to maybe check out because I knew that there were good good restaurants and uh, um, just something uh, struck me about that place but they, we, the timing was right again I was looking for a change uh, looking to maybe um, move somewhere else and a lot of this stems from my wife at, at the time was not my wife but she uh, got accepted to medical school in uh, Lubbock, Texas and I think we were 24, 24 years old at yeah. the time. And, uh, and I was like, babe, I can't, uh, I'm not going to move there with you. Yeah. There's nothing for me in Lubbock. Um, so she went up there and I went to San Francisco again and, and then on to Aspen. So, I mean, I, I kind of just, I had this bug, this, this urge to keep traveling and see what's out there. But uh, uh, Ryan Hardy came up and uh, the fact that he had a farm and was doing a really... Uh, high quality Italian cuisine was it was intriguing to me, so I wanted to check it out. And um, yeah, it kind of worked out that uh, a couple of the guys that um, are, are partners at Odd Duck and uh, and in the future project, we uh, we met there and got to cook together. And um, after a year of doing that, you know, I, I decided I told them I was I'm gonna move back to Austin and open this food truck. And I think they were they were all they all thought I was crazy. Well, I mean. And, uh, but that was 2009, and yeah. if you said that now, they'd be like, yeah, that totally, that totally makes sense. Um, well, look, we're going to take a quick break. Uh-huh. We're going to come back and talk about the opening of Odd Duck, the fact that your brother couldn't get a job. <laughs> and uh, we're going to hear a track from the archives uh, live on Snacky Tunes here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. I'm sitting here with Bryce Gilmore, owner and executive chef of Barley Swine and Odd Duck in Austin, Texas. Um, so you're leaving Aspen. It's 2009. You tell everyone you're going to open a food truck. Everyone looks at you thinking that you are absolutely crazy. Um, and they probably thought you were crazier because you're like, oh, I'm going to do a farm to trailer yeah. food truck. Yeah. Um, what was it like trying to get that going? Um, and how did you get that started? Well, it was something, it was something that popped in my head one day because I, I was thinking about going back home and um, I was ready to do my own thing. I think every chef kind of gets to a point where they're just tired of working for other people. And, sure. And want to want to be the boss. So I, 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 you know, after thinking about it, I was like, this is the only conceivable way that I can do it. I'm 26 years old. I don't have any money. No one's going to give me a million dollars to open a restaurant. No. So what are my options, you know? And uh, being from Austin and knowing that that was kind of the peak of trailer, food trucks and trailers. Yeah. Uh, 2009, I think that, like, uh, there were, tra- were food trucks getting national recognition for mm-hmm. what they were doing. And Austin was... The city had made it very, um, I guess, easy for people to open a food truck and start their own business. Smart. Um, so it just kind of made sense. And, um, you know, the, the farmer's markets were taken off. There were a lot a lot more farmers on the scene um, selling to restaurants. And, and, uh, and I knew that, you know, I, if I could get in here and get just just have the opportunity to cook and uh, offer some, some food to people that maybe maybe there'd be a chance that this would work. Um, and uh, knowing that, you know, people would be receptive to to um, a trailer that was cooking food from, from local farms. And, and you know, I think more, more and more people were, were caring about where their food was coming from, and, and I kind of recognized that. And so I figured I'd give it a shot. Um, so a lot of those relationships that you started then did you have contacts had you been working with the farms before because a lot of those and we'll get to it but a lot of relationships you started at the trailer continue today and you've helped actually grow this whole distribution network and there are people who are growing different produce and things like that but what were those initial conversations like um or were farmers already open to the idea because of trailblazers like wink and things like that i mean i think um i at the time i didn't know I wasn't that familiar with it, so when I moved back, yeah, I mean, I knew of the farmers markets, and and but I didn't, I would, I didn't have any relationships with the farmers yet. So I moved back in, uh, I think it was like August or September of that year. Um, I started going to the markets every week, and then uh, um, while trying to figure this trailer out, so we we ended up buying this thing uh, off of eBay uh, in Wisconsin. You know, I hadn't seen it in person. That's the uh, most 2009 thing that you could <laughs> say, buying a food trailer <laughs> off of eBay and yeah. opening up in Austin. That like, alone was, yeah. was was quite the experience. Yeah. Me, me and my brother, we drove up to Wisconsin. I hadn't seen this. That's a brother. Person. That is a brother, yeah. like, I need your help here, man. No, yeah. Don't look at me. Don't question so, me. So we... we we, you know, on 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 eBay, it looked great. You know, it was of already course. set up. It was set up for uh, catering. They had they like did they like took this trailer to do festivals and like sell hot dogs and stuff. 
Um, but I wanted something with character. It was like an old eight, 1980 yeah. Fleetwood Mallard uh, that had been turned into into a food uh, truck that that uh, was a travel trailer before. And um, you know, I looked at doing the whole the the you know the the cookie cutter white box uh, sure. custom made pieces and. And that's not really what I wanted. I wanted something, and there were airstreams. Everyone's turning airstreams. Yeah, yeah, trucks, yeah. You know, I wanted something different. You know, you want something that had lived a little and uh, seen the that world. Was, that was standalone, and, and yeah. you know, people would recognize uh, just driving by it. So I saw this thing. I was like, cool. You know, I think we can fix that up, uh, make it make it workable, and, and and all that stuff. So we drove up there, and and uh, and, and and walk in, and the ce- I'm, my hair is touching the ceiling. It's like super tight. <laughs> the it's a mess. Like nothing in there is working. The electrical was all all crazy and the plumbing was all crazy and so um but it was like a couple thousand bucks and i looked at my brother and like let's just buy this thing i mean and he was your business advisor so so if he said yes (laughs) so yeah and you know it was like it 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 was the the name of that trailer was laura's wiener wagon of course and it was painted all over the thing and we were like well you know we're gonna have to drive this thing down we're gonna drive this thing down and we'll fix it up so we uh we we yeah we 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 finally got it out of Wisconsin and, and, and brought it down and uh, I think we got it was such a weird looking trailer we got pulled over in like Nebraska or something of course we thought we were smuggling drugs back to Texas um, so we we got it back down here we spent uh, the next like three months uh, we gutted the whole thing out I, did, I had to do a lot more work to it than we originally wanted or anticipated um, and uh, we had you know we, we did this my, my dad had all the tools so we were just kind of Parked it out there and uh, spent the next three months basically gutting and, and turning this trailer into something that we wanted, uh, where we knew we could we could uh, cook out of. And uh, and uh, during that time, I was able to kind of go to the farms and, and check out what was going on, so that we could uh, have a better sense of of uh, what was available to us when we were ready. And we ended up opening in December, which is. Uh, not the best time to open a food truck because it's being cold outside. Uh, that is also directly tied to farms. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we, uh, I think we were still getting corn at the time. Well, that's good. It was, just, it was, I guess it was a little warm. Our, our December is going to be warm yeah. down here. So, um, but it was definitely a rough January, February. But I mean, as rough as it was, maybe right when you opened, the recognition came pretty quickly. I mean, you know, Bourdain came down, Zimmerman came down. Yeah. I mean, people. Did you just sort of feel that niche that people didn't really know that they had been looking for and needed? I didn't realize that, you know, people loved uh, pork belly sandwiches so much. <laughs> they do. They, they, they do. And again, 2009, 2010, pork belly it was yeah. still just like yeah. a yeah. new... It was like, what is this? Yeah. Yeah. And... Uh, yeah, so I mean, I, I always loved pork, and uh, obviously pork belly is like... If you love pork, it is the quintessential porky dish that you know part of the pig that you're going to get the fat and the, uh, the gelatin and all that stuff that uh, that that the pig is known that it, the great things that it has to offer. Yeah. Um, so, and we were cooking everything over a, a wood grill. That's amazing. So we had we had this, and that was another. That's a whole other story. I filled 30 minutes talking about this <laughs> thing. Where we we, uh, we put a four foot. Wood fire grill in this twenty foot trailer. Oh, it was inside the trailer. Inside, the not trailer. behind the trailer. No, it was inside the trailer. Oh my but God. I screened. I kind of had a bunch of screened windows 
and I didn't, you know, I'm not a, I'm not an engineer. How's that fire means. code? What was um, the fire code on that? There, uh, well, again, <laughs> the city made it very easy yeah. to do this stuff um, because yeah. I didn't have any propane. The right. fire, the fire marshal wasn't involved in my tr- truck at all. Smart. Um, so everything was cooked on this wood fire, and I don't know if you've ever cooked over a wood fire in a in a uh, you're roasting twenty yourself. by twenty ro- by seven I mean, box. Uh, without any sort of ventilation, put on an aluminum jacket. Uh, you're like a roasted potato in there, man. Like it was very hard. I think uh, I we were trying to figure out how to get the smoke out, and we had a couple fans, and they just weren't doing the job. And I didn't have the money to invest in like a real, a real like commercial hood system. Sure. So um, after I think the first four days of being open, uh, the fifth day I I I, I, got, I woke up and I couldn't open my eyes because. Oh. The smoke was had been so damaging. Uh, just standing there, like I couldn't even like look at the grill while I was. Yeah, you, you had you had so smoked your eyes. So we were like, we gotta, I, 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 I can't, I can't do this anymore. So um, we ended up. Uh, I, I think my dad had this idea. It was like we put a bunch of fans on the outside to suck it out, rather yeah, than like something it. blow it out. It was like let's put them on. Like, and then you were good to go. So we were good to go. We figured it out. I mean, it was still a really challenging thing, but. Um, uh, we wanted we wanted the wood fire because I mean obviously you have that flavor and yeah. um, we thought that would be just that extra bonus uh, to our to our food um, cooking pork belly over over a wood grill is is pretty awesome. Um, I mean that love of pork let you know and beer and food and everything led to your first brick and mortar uh, barley swine. Um, how did that open? What made you decide to open up a full restaurant that wasn't just like. Odd, because a lot of times it goes like odd duck trailer, odd duck brick and mortar. You decide yeah. to open up something different. Yeah. Um, well, the the when we started the trailer, the whole idea was to have a restaurant. Yeah. Um, so there was it in, in in hopes it was to, to uh, it was like a first step towards that. So luckily, I mean, this space came along uh, within I think it was like eight months after after uh, opening the trailer and. Um, I, I saw a lot of potential in it. It was small enough. I think it was like a next uh, good step for us because it was something we could naturally move into and, and figure it out. Um, and then we uh, we um, we signed the lease. I think a couple months after that, and so we were open a year after opening the trailer. And I think I think we didn't use the Odd Duck name because we we had the trailer still operating. Right. And uh, um, I just I wanted something different. We were kind of going for this gastro pub. Kind of concept. I remember. I was. Were, I was there early days. The yeah. Also, um, really inspired by like, like New York and yeah. large cities and like, large cities with really tiny restaurants and trying to cram as many people in there as possible. So it was all communal seating. I think we had 30, 30 to forty seats. It was like a thousand square feet, and uh, it was cozy. It was cozy. It was cozy. But we made it work. Um, so Barley Swine's going, you shut down the trailer, and then you just focus, you switch over to a tasting menu only at Barley Swine. Yeah. I mean, how many farm-to-table tasting menu restaurants were there in Austin? Uh, in like, Yeah, okay. So so being the first farm-to-table... Well, to Wink, t- was doing, Wink was doing... Yeah. A, they had their option, their their uh, prefix options. Yeah. How did Austin react to that? Did, did people... Did, had you had people been brought along... Uh, slowly enough to understand like what you guys were doing. Well, the re- honestly, the, the reason I switched to tasting menu only at, at the original barley was because of um, the opening of the odd, of odd duck, the brick and mortar. Right. So you shut down and the trailer was, and then you open up the so, large. Yeah, like three, a couple years after the trailer closed, three years into barley swine being open, we uh, 
we found this other space. It was right down the street from Barley Swine, mm -hmm. actually on the same lot that the trailer was. It was developed into this um, this fun? condo that had one restaurant space on it. It's we amazing. Like, I want that. So we, I did everything I could to convince the landlord to uh, to let us it's let us put story. a product up there. You know, and, yeah. And they bought it, and so we uh, we went with it. And and at that time, I was like, well, I. I don't want the restaurants to compete with each other because I want to kind of have a similar concept. Sure. You know, we do we do shared plates, small plates, um, trying to encourage people to, to order a bunch of stuff and, and try a bunch of different things. And I and, uh, wanted to do the same thing there. And so we, I, I was really hesitant, but it kind of just made sense to do the tasting menu there. And, um, uh, I, I wasn't sure how people would receive it, but... Um, it was kind of becoming more popular around around the country. Yeah, where chefs were doing it. Um, so I thought it'd be you know shit. Let's let's be the first people in Austin to have a tasting menu only restaurant. And it was gangbusters. I mean, yeah, it was. I mean, we could sit here and go through the entire list of awards and nods that you see. But you've gotten what you've done in Austin has been recognized locally, nationally. Um, James Beard, Eater, everyone. Um, but I think one of the Obviously, the restaurants are beautiful and important. The food you're doing is saying something. But one of the things that I love the most is, and we touched on this earlier, the network that you've built of, of farmers. Like, you've, you have restaurants that change the actual way that people live their lives and uh, what they grow and things like that. Um, how has that been? How have, you, how have you helped create this distribution, grow network? And how have you seen its influences, you know, in the city and beyond? Um, I mean, I'm, I feel very fortunate that I get to be one of many guys in Austin right now that are they're trying to do the same thing. There's a lot of respectable chefs that care about where their food comes from and, and uh, make it one of their priorities to to support the local farmers, knowing that they are the future of uh, of, of our food. And yeah. uh, if we don't continue to see uh, uh, growth with the farmers, then we're going to be in a bad spot. Real soon. bad. So, um, you know, I'm just I'm just fortunate to be a part of it, and, and I'll do whatever I can to help help it grow and help it improve, and and uh, it's been fun to see it naturally just get uh, evolve and get to where it is now. I look forward to to how far we can take it and how, how many more farmers are going to be out there, how many more restaurants are going to be out there that, that make the commitment to sourcing from these guys. And uh, and making it a you know I just want it to be a, a viable option for people to get into farming yeah. so that they can support their families and know that you know if they if you have restaurants and, and wholesale accounts to to help uh, make that possible then then let's let's try to get everybody on board so um, and that's why I think our future any future concepts that we're going to be doing is going to be more geared towards making this food this taking our philosophy at Odd Duck and, and here at Barley Swine um, of sourcing locally and cooking from scratch like really taking a, a, the craftsman approach to cooking sure. um, applying that to to restaurants and, and concepts where it's going to be even more approachable and more possible for people to to uh, to eat food where they know and feel comfortable knowing where their food is coming from and so I think uh that's what we're working on now. We hope to open this space uh, at the end of the year. Yeah, let's talk about that. You recently announced a new project yeah. Yeah. called Sour Duck. Uh, what, what's it going to be? What's the story? There's a lot going on there. Um, it's on the east side. It's, uh, it's a larger space than, than both the, the other restaurants. Um, 
It's going to incorporate uh, a bakery aspect, um, some takeout service. Really trying to, f- to focus on uh, fast, convenient service for people. Um, there will be uh, a kind of a beer cocktail garden outside. Love it. Trying to make that really, really fun. Um, and then, uh, and then a cool bar that opens up to the to the outside. Um, so really, a place where we're, we're trying to open breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, really, uh, again, um, a bigger kitchen where we can kind of have a commissary where we can produce some stuff up there and take it to the other restaurants. Possibly do catering, mm. private events. Um, so it's like you're the, like the the commissary, like kind of building a home base, home I think, base for, commissary, for the clubhouse. Got, yeah, clubhouse. For what we got going on now, and then any future uh, projects that we. So there'll be some R and D in there, like an area for you I guys. Think so I mean, we're gonna we're also gonna take the old uh, the old trailer into it, turn it into a big smoker. So oh man, a big uh, like full circle foot smoker in there. Where's the living right now? Where uh, the trailer is? It's in storage. So uh, it's at my buddy Dave's house, who actually built the wood oven at Odd Duck and, the, and our wood grill yeah. and hearth here at Barley Swine. Um, really amazing uh, kind of stone worker and metal worker um, that uh, designs and builds ovens, basically, and grills. Amazing. So he's he's gonna he's gutting it out again, and he's gonna turn that whole thing into a big smoker. So that'll be on site. So like large format. Yeah, we're not trying to like open a barbecue restaurant by right. any means, but um, but as many. As many smoked meats and, and things that we can. Uh, I think it's a it's just a very efficient way to yeah. to cook a lot of meat, really. Yeah. Well, Bryce, can't thank you enough for sitting down talking with us. Absolutely. Congratulations. Um, odd duck, barley swine, sour duck. When's that opening? Hopefully uh, by December awesome. 2017. Well, we will be back down to check it all out. Um, what's Instagram? What's the website? Where can people find you guys? Uh, Barleyswine.com, oddduckaustin.com. Um, uh, you know, it should be pretty easy. Awesome. Well, we have a live performance coming up next, and then we have another track from the archives on Snacky Tunes here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Lord is talking through me. I'm a vessel for his message. I am many who look up to me I'm very well respected The Lord is talking to me He tells me what to do And it's my very purpose Shares word with you. Tell them what they wanna hear. Tell them what they wanna
Foods USA is a farm-to-table online butcher and founding sponsor of Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Foods got its start when Patrick Martin's first stepped foot onto Frank Reese's Kansas farm in 2001. 
Back then, Frank was the only farmer in America raising true heritage turkeys with recorded lineages tracing back more than 150 years. Patrick knew instantly he'd found a unique moment, an opportunity to go beyond acknowledging these breeds as being jeopardized and to actually do something to save them. Patrick asked Frank to ramp up production and made a promise to him that if he would raise them, Heritage Foods USA would sell them. That was the moment that Heritage Foods' slogan, Eat Them to Save Them, was born. By creating a market for delicious meats from heritage breeds, we can ensure they'll be around for generations to come. Plus, heritage breeds just taste a whole lot better. Learn more at HeritageFoodsUSA.com and use the code HERITAGERADIO for two free pork chops with your first order, brother. Welcome back. We have Henry Flower in studio. Welcome, Henry. Hi, nice to be here. Before we get into the message, I want to go back to the childhood. Um, you were raised in a cult. Can you tell us about your upbringing and what the surrounding was like and what the day in, day out was? Well, like most cults, there's um, a period of um, kind of utopia. And I think when I was about four years old, I had to get used to life being really lovely and beautiful. And then uh, when that ended, everything became sort of dark. And then I started playing music to try to reverse that. And and how did the cult end, if you don't mind me prying? (laughs) Um, It became really political. My mother ended up running for governor of North Carolina under their political party. And they just took a lot of money from us. We grew up pretty wealthy. And then uh, by the time I was eight, we were living in a trailer park. So it just, things went sour. And your mom was a well-regarded psychic as well, right? Uh, Yeah, sort of unofficially. She never did it for money, but um, friends would come over. And I didn't really understand... um, how it was different from any other friends coming over to meet with their parents. But yeah, she would give them psychic readings and um, kind of take a lot of their burden off of them. And that ended up kind of affecting us later when she didn't unburden herself. Do you have a good example of that or, or something that she took on that she couldn't give away? Um. When we were in North Carolina, we were doing a lot of uh, we were doing a lot of that stuff, and you know she was kind of teaching me how to do it as well. And then, um, for example, uh, the the luck our luck just sort of kept getting worse and worse. And at one point, there was a one month period where a tree fell on our car, and then we got it fixed. And then a car crashed into the car that was parked, and then. I left the living room one day to go make a snack and um, and uh, the ceiling of the living room just collapsed and destroyed everything and would have probably killed me. Just like strange phenomenon. Lightning struck like right next to us one day when we were driving. Just strange things. And so what brought you from North Carolina to New York? And, and how old were you when you, when you got to the city? Um, well, we moved around a lot. It was, the cult was, is based out of Iowa. 
and then um, I was born in Europe, actually. And then um, uh, we moved to Connecticut um, to try to like change our life and change our luck. And things started getting better for her then. But that's when I turned, you know, 16 and became really rebellious and uh, started playing music. And then she moved to Kansas and I sort of like went on my own when I was 16. And um, but then, yeah, I moved to New York about five years ago. There's sort of like this uh, Jesus period where I just feel like I kind of was off the face of the planet for a while and then just came back in my 30s. What, what type of music were you into or what did you take from the cult and what were you listening to in the early days of, of playing and forming your sound? Um, the, the cult is like sort of uh, based, the leader is from India. So uh, raga music has been really, really um, influential for me growing up. That was some of the first music I ever heard and um, I really, really love that and uh so like when i started trying to work on new songs and become henry flower it um i was like practicing raga scales and stuff like that i don't know how much it translates but that that's like my soul music 2014 you discover the message can you take us through that process can you just kind of explain to us how you got it delivered to you or, or how was it a soul evolution was it an epiphany or how did that develop um i was playing an open mic night and uh didn't really know who i was and a manager named blaze boylan came through and um sort of made helped me believe in myself and and in in my powers and then we started developing the message more um, professionally together. Yeah, it's a bummer Blaze couldn't be here today. Yeah, he's in the Hamptons. Must be nice. I hear it's nice. Well, why don't we play a quick song and then we'll come back and talk more about your work with Blaze and what the message is. What are you going to play for us first? This one's called Stranger When I'm Done. Great. Here we go live on Snacky Tunes. Something that makes me like the bullfrog. 
I'm done. about the message is that it gives a framework in your own words to create music that's 100% earnest what makes music or your music 100% earnest as opposed to everything else that came before it well I think today all people are or most people in America are on social media and they're creating their own personas Um, so in that way I feel like authenticity is dead we're living like a post authenticity world post authentic i guess and um so by by fully giving into the message and living the message 100 percent apart from yourself i think that's the only way to actually be 100 percent earnest or to make a earnest art is by accepting that you aren't yourself. Blaze is so well known in the industry among artists. I know that he is a busy man, uh, but how was connecting with him, how has that helped both your relationship to your music and your relationship together really grow what Henry Flower could, could really become? He's helped in, in so many ways, I think, 
artists are afraid to be um, capitalistic or opportunistic or something. They want to just focus on their art, and Blaze Boylan allows me to do that because I don't have to think about anything except the music I make with my band and uh, the community of artists here in Brooklyn and Queens. He really fills in that side of the ability for you to make as much money as possible to really bring in all the opportunities so it's almost like a church and state. So Sorry, is that a weird thing to say for cold people? No, that's, that's fine. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, where he allows things to be all the business opportunities, all the money, all that stuff, and you are protected to make the art and spread the message. Do I understand that correctly? Yeah, that, it would be better for him to answer the nuts and bolts um, there, but I, I don't, I don't know, really know how it works, and I haven't really seen any money, but I know that, um, so I'm not sure if we're making money, but I, if we are, he's uh, taking care of it, and I know that I have a roof over my head, and I get fed and um, driven to different performances, and that's that's my life. Can we hear another song? Yes, you may. What are you going to play for us? This one's called As Above, So Below. The song that opened up the show for us. Um, I think, actually, we decided to play a different song. Um, I got a last-minute message from Blaze Boylan. So I think we showed you Down in Carolina, which was our first single. This is our second single that we're going to play for you now.
It's the same feeling we all grew up with The means we'll need an end It's a choice for us all to divide got a text from blaze he said please make sure to mention the record that's coming out friday flower rama very exciting record release playing with some actual former snacky tune alums who are in studio today which is super cool and a super group but before we talk about the record release show out on paper garden records hello paper garden family magical people how did the record come about what do you message are you trying to get out who are you trying to reach um, I think this record is very much an introduction to the world of Henry Flower. Um, the more I've been meditating and, and gathering my power um, for this release, the more I'm realizing how vast this magical universe is. And I'm excited to be the vessel and portal for um, people in Brooklyn who are disenchanted with religion and just general meaning um, to uh, I'm, I'm excited to be their portal into this magical world that will open up on June 16th, which is Bloomsday. What's Bloomsday? It was a, it's a portal that was opened by um, James Joyce, who wrote the book Ulysses. Uh, it's a very ancient thread that goes back through the Odyssey and the first stories ever written. <clears throat> and um, Bloomsday is the international celebration day for the book Ulysses. And that's uh, sort of where I gather a lot of my information and power. Are there any lessons from being raised in a cult that you can take a positive spin on for 
what you're about to take on. It seems like a lot of responsibility to be the leader of all these people. Um, I am just trying to take it day by day, but um, I think that cults are often negatively uh, looked upon in a negative way. And, and um, I think there's a lot of value in, in trying something experimental and new and though they may end in bloodshed or uh, lots of Kool-Aid that's poisoned, uh, often they at least start very positively. And I, um, I just hope everyone can see that we're in the beginning baby stages of the cult. So this is a good time to get in. Maybe in 10 years, uh, it would be best to stay away. But... I think I have enough foresight to um, be aware of that. Record releases Friday at Berlin. Yes. Who else is on the bill? Our dear, dear friends, the undercover dream lovers, whom we have shared uh, band members with. Um, they're definitely in the hierarchy of the flower power. And a secret band called Rhinestone which is like sort of this Bushwick super group. And it's also maybe the only country band in Brooklyn that's genuine. But uh, it's members of Ziemba, Baby Birds, Don't Drink Milk, Edith Pop, Roya. Want to make sure we have time for one more song. Where can people find the record next week, find you, learn about the message, get a coffee mug? Um, I urge everyone to come to the show on June 16th. It's going to be a beautiful evening. But if you're on the web and uh, maybe too far to get here, then I would suggest going on henryflower.tumblr.com and um, signing up for our mailing list, which is essentially um, a little um, snippet that you get every month of the actual message. And for the listeners out there, there's no vowels in there except a Y because it's sometimes a vowel, so it makes the cut. Yes, I don't believe that Y is a vowel. I think that's a um, fallacy. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you to Chef Bryce Gilmore as well. Uh, if you like this episode and you want to hear more of the archives, especially our episode with the Undercover Dream Lovers, go to the Snacky Tunes podcast and subscribe. We're in there. Leave us a review if you feel so inclined. What are you going to take us out with? This song goes out to all the little siblings and the underdogs in the world. It's called Little Brother. Thanks for joining us this week, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Snacky Tunes. Thanks for having us.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.